Hi folks, Bob Main here, and welcome to another episode of today's Survival Show, where it's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. As Teddy Roosevelt said many, many years ago, this is episode number 145. It's a bright, sunny day. I'm driving down Interstate 45. There's not much traffic. It's the middle of the day. I'm heading to Houston, Texas on a business trip. And as many of you know, I often do this show while I've got windshield time. I'm a salesperson as a full-time career. I am in the electronic access control business where I sell products for the hotel industry. So I help make hotels more secure. Everything from your room keys and the room locks to the front desk to all the perimeter exits and so forth. So I'm going down to Houston to visit some customers. I'm going to spend a little bit of my windshield time here on this approximately four-hour and 20-minute drive or so uh, to bring you some ideas about common sense preparedness. And this is a common sense show. I don't engage in any tinfoil hat type thinking. I don't believe in that stuff. I think that survival should be a common sense proposition. Don't you agree? So you just get some common sense ideas from an everyday guy like me. And I'm going to talk about fact or fiction in this episode. Some survival myths, if you will. But I'm going to call it fact or fiction. Fact or fiction for survival, actually. Because, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And in the last episode, in episode 144, I was talking about some of the differences between how a military or law enforcement person approaches a survival situation versus a civilian. And uh, most people seem to enjoy that episode. I got a couple of comments. Uh, one that you can see on the blog. One listener thought that I was kind of off base on some things. And I tried to clarify myself. So look at the comments under the show notes or under the posting for episode 144. So let me just start with that. Let me make a comment about my last episode. My main goal that I was trying to achieve in that episode was to point out the fact that a lot of people who get on the Internet and post about survivalism, I think, tend to overdo it. And I'm going to bring that point out a little bit more in this podcast. But have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that a lot of people, they, they overdo it, they just over-sensationalize things? And maybe because a lot of them, it's from their background. Now, I have absolutely nothing against military or law enforcement people. I'm not ex-military or ex-law enforcement, okay? And I have the utmost respect for the men and women of our military and the men and women who are in law enforcement that are putting their lives on the line every day. Their perspective of how to deal with disasters is probably going to be different than the everyday citizen. Would you agree? One listener commented that, you know, well, he said, Bob, you carry a Glock pistol, which carry, you know holds 15 or 16 rounds, when you're probably not going to need that many rounds. So, you know, why do you, why do you say that some people are Internet commandos when they talk about carrying a lot of ammo? I think that listener missed my point. My point is I've seen, matter of fact, I'm going to try to look up some posts and maybe put them in the show notes for you to look at. My main point was that there are a lot of people out there that spend too much time thinking about how can I get 12 magazines of 30 rounds of 223 in my bug out bag when the chances are very likely and I'm going to spend some more time doing my myth busting in this episode the chances are very likely you're not going to need those 12 magazines of 223 ammo to fend off a horde of zombies or a bunch of people coming after you 
the chances are very likely before supplies and before everything gets restored to normal, the chances are very likely you're not going to need that. The chances of you needing food or water or first aid supplies or shelter building materials probably going to be greater, would you agree? So my whole point there is I was trying to stress, don't listen to the people telling you you need a year's worth of MREs and 400 rounds of 223 and you got to stick to 223 because it's it's easier to carry and you can carry more rounds than you can with 7.62 or 308. I, my opinion is, and again, it's just my opinion, you can differ if you want, don't listen to those kinds of commandos because... They're focusing on what's least likely. I like to talk about on this show what's most likely. And it's more likely you're going to have to feed yourself and your family. It's more likely you're going to have to build a fire, or you're going to have to create some shelter, or you're going to have to administer first aid to somebody who just got injured in a disaster. Or probably even more likely that you're going to have to entertain kids or you're going to have to communicate to loved ones or communicate to authorities or try to seek help. So you're going to have to have ways of communicating in a disaster and so forth. Aren't those things probably just as important, if not more important, in surviving some kind of a tragedy than having a year's worth of MREs in your bug-out bag. And, and the point I'm trying to make is, as I've said many times, leaving your home or your bug-out location, you know, leaving your residence, whatever it happens to be, is probably going to be not a real good idea if you have the option to stay. I would say chances are, and again, nothing is absolute. You never say never, Right. Nothing is absolute, but I'm playing the odds here, folks. The chances are it's probably going to be better for you to stay put where all of your supplies are and where you've spent so much time and money preparing. That's probably going to be the better option, isn't it? That was my whole goal. So, uh, again, I just wanted to kind of clear that up. But we're going to talk about fact or fiction in survival. And there's plenty of good articles out there about survival myths. I will put a link in the show notes. There are several authors that I'm going to borrow some information from on this show. And, of course, I'm going to put in some of my own information, as I typically do. And in, sometimes I inject an opinion here and there. It's my show. Hopefully you can, you can hang with that. But I'll link to all the authors who deserve the credit. And you need to read their articles. They're very, very good articles. And that will be in the show notes so go to todayssurvival.com. That's the website, todayssurvival.com. Also, let me invite you to join our forum at Today's Survival. If you just go to todayssurvival.com, go to the Today's Survival Show forum. Just click the forum button right up at the top of the page. And it'll tell you where you need to go. It'll get you, tell you, give you instructions on how to get signed up and so forth, folks. I'll have to approve your uh, account, but I'll probably get it approved in less than 24 hours, and you can start communicating with like-minded people who generally listen to this show. Also, I want to let you know that I'd like to invite you to become a member of the Champions Club, the Survival Champions Club. It's a club I invented. It's basically for people who support my efforts. This is not my full-time job, and I don't, t- I don't intend to make a ton of money on this show, folks. This is just my way of having fun. And I learn as much from this show by doing it as you do from listening to it. Uh, just Basically, it's my goal to just share a lot of information. But there are costs and everything associated with this. So I have developed a special podcast, a premium podcast, with some information I've never covered on today's survival show before. I've done versions one and two. If you'd like to help out this show, uh, for $25, you can get the latest edition of today's survival show. You can go to todayssurvival.com. You can click on the Survival Champions podcast, and there's a package deal that I've put together. So for 25 bucks you can get both of them. Excuse me. I think it was, I, I said $25. It's $15 to support the show if you want to get one of the Champions Club podcasts. And there's some good interviews on there. Some very good interviews, not just me talking, but some good stuff. So go to todayssurvival.com, click the Buy Now button, or just click the Survival Champions Club podcast link, and you can see how to make that investment if you wish to support my show. That's it. I don't like this to be very commercial, and I don't, you know what, folks? I keep this commercial free. 
I don't bring on sponsors or anything like that. Uh, those kinds of shows kind of irritate me where the host spends, you know, a third of the podcast talking about sponsors and so forth. I don't do that. It's a listener-supported show free of a lot of commercials and free of a lot of politics. So let's dive into some survival myths here. Fact or fiction on survivalism. The first topic I want to cover, and since I just kind of got done talking a little bit about guns, let's talk about the myth that weapons are the most important thing. And as you know, this is not a gun show. I do another podcast for that. I do another podcast called The Handgun World Show on the Gun Rights Radio Network. And that's all I do over there is talk about guns. So I try to keep this free of firearms. However, there's a myth out there that circulates that guns and weapons are the most important thing for survival. And I've talked about this many times before, but let me share some things maybe you haven't thought of. Firearms should be treated like catastrophic health insurance. If you think about it, they're insurance policies. Better to, better to have it and not need it than to need it and not have it, that's for sure. And you should own guns and hope that you never have to use them, kind of like insurance. Here's the thing. If you do need a gun, you need it badly. If you do, do need insurance, you need it pretty badly, don't you? And, you know, there's a lot of hypochondriacs out there. I mean, there's a certain population and a certain segment of, of our society that, that can't seem to look beyond the terrible events that would cause you to need a gun in self-defense. They just can't seem to get beyond that. You know what I mean? I mean, they seem to think like, oh, every disaster is going to cause you to need a gun. Not so. Every disaster is not going to cause you to need a gun. There's a lot of disasters that you'll be able to mitigate and get through and work your way through and never have to fire a shot, folks. I eat three times a day. I don't have to shoot somebody three times a day. So there you go. Think about the the uh, importance of both of those, and you tell me what's going to be more likely to need. And if you think about it, the most common survival situations are usually caused by a disease or an accident of some kind or, or some various kinds of disasters that, that typically hit closer to home than zombies attacking. A, a death in the family, a loss of a job, somebody gets sick, gets a disease. Uh, it's definitely going to cause a lot of stress in your family, is it not? Isn't that a survival situation? You're probably not going to have to fire a shot to get through any of those situations. There are exceptions to this. I understand that. And yes, it is possible you could be mugged walking down the street. It is possible you could wake up in the middle of the night and somebody's invading your home. That happens. Muggings happen. But they're rare. They're rare. And the overall violent crime rate, at least in the United States, now I know I have international listeners. And by the way, a good shout out to all of you. I got people listening from New Zealand and Australia, people listening from Switzerland. One person from Finland sent me an email. Uh, somebody from Poland sent me an email. So, I, you know what? I can't speak to what it's like in your countries. But in the United States, we've enjoyed pretty much a relative decline in the amount of violent crime on the streets. There's a lot of reasons for that, and that's a whole other show I won't get into, but those are pretty rare occurrences compared to how many people are sick because they haven't taken care of their bodies or because they abuse their bodies and they're not staying in shape, which I think, by the way, is a survival prep, folks. Staying in shape, eating healthy, working out, fitness, that's a survival prep that's often forgotten about. So the average reasonable person is a lot more likely probably to fall down a flight of stairs or get hit by a car or be in a car accident than you will become a victim of some kind of a life-threatening attack. Now, there's people that are listening to this show that have put on our forum, they have posted real-life experiences about a home invasion. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but the likelihood is small. And no gun, no matter how big it is, no matter how much ammo it holds, and, and so forth, no gun's going to help you do things like administer first aid or, relo or you know, relocate a dislocated shoulder or keep your house from burning down and stuff like that. 
Now, there are exceptions to everything. There are people who live in very dangerous areas. I understand that. And if you live in a very dangerous area already, if it's, if it's dangerous now, then after a disaster, yeah, it might be more likely to be even more dangerous. But you see, that's a given. And there are people that have the ability to make their own choices as to where they want to live. But the main point I'm trying to make here on this is that the possibility of violent crime uh, happening to you, those odds are a far cry from things like illness, financial strife, uh, maybe a home burglary, perhaps, maybe a home fire, loss of a job, weather disaster, tornado, hurricane, so forth. So from a survival perspective, even though guns are useful tools, and they could be important, I think they probably should take a back seat to most of your other preparations. Okay? Especially if money is tight for you. You know, here's the problem. I see a lot of people spend a ton of money on guns and knives and ammo Money that probably could be better spent. Now, again, folks, you guys know I'm a gun guy. I like firearms. but and I, and I own a lot of them, and I own a lot of ammo, and that is part of my preparations. But don't drop all of your expendable cash on those and not have enough food, water, basic supplies, or a 72-hour emergency kit that's properly stocked and so forth. That's my main point there. Another myth I want to talk about, another fact or fiction myth, is a lot of people talk about how it's not safe when you're traveling to carry cash with you. So let's talk about the myth that carrying cash is not safe. This myth has been busted many times. And I don't know really where it came from. I don't even know why people think that. But if you just look at pure statistics... Getting mugged on the street, getting robbed on the street, and somebody taking your purse or your wallet with a bunch of cash in it is far less likely to happen than, for example, identity theft or somebody hacking one of your financial accounts. Or let's say when you make a purchase on the Internet, somebody hacking that information and getting your credit card and and putting false charges on your credit card. Do you realize how much identity theft happens? Do you realize how much that stuff goes on out there? Do you realize how many times people are getting credit opened up in their own name because thieves on the Internet are getting it? So so there is a bigger financial risk than carrying a couple hundred dollars of cash on your person. Folks, your purse and your wallet are safest when they're on your body. Now... There's always stories, always stories in the news about people getting mugged or their, their purse being stolen or their wallet being stolen or they're being held up by bad guys pointing a gun at them saying, give me your wallet. Yes, it happens. But I just got done saying the amount of that is decreasing. And there are a lot of other things that can threaten you financially a lot more than keeping cash on you. And there's a lot of benefits in keeping cash on you. I've talked about this before. But, you know, folks, I travel a lot. And I keep a lot of cash with me. You might be saying, Shh, Bob, you shouldn't say that. People who know you, you know, something bad could happen. Well, I hopefully the people who know me aren't going to want to do something bad to me. But I don't publish my travel schedule much. And uh, usually you hear about my travel after it's taken place. I don't typically tell you where I'm going to go and when I'm going to go. And I don't usually tell a lot of people where I'm going to go. And, and, and the bottom line is, is that when things are on your body, they're usually safer than they are anywhere else. I, what do you trust more? Do you trust money in your pocket or do you trust the bank? See, I don't trust a lot of banks, folks. I mean, in today's society and the way our government's going right now and, and the amount of debt our government is racking up, a, a federally insured bank account means nothing to me anymore. How about you? And I've always been a big believer that cash is king. Now, I know cash is, is decreasing in value. I know that the dollar is decreasing in value. And I'm not talking about several thousand dollars on you, but 
there's a lot of benefits to keeping cash on you. If you're traveling and an emergency happens when you're traveling, cash spends a lot better than credit cards or traveler's checks. Credit cards are never a good idea anyway. I've talked about that before. I don't want to get into that subject. But, you know, giving people tips, giving people 10 and $20 tips is a lot easier to do when you have plenty of cash. You can still get cash discounts when you make purchases. Folks, you have to ask for them, but you'd be amazed how many times you can get cash discounts because merchants don't want to pay the credit card service fees. I just feel comfortable. There's always a sense of confidence, folks, that I have when I keep a couple hundred dollars in my wallet on me all the time. Okay, It's something I learned back when I was about 20 years old. Just keep a small wad of cash on you. It's just it's so convenient, folks, and uh, it's not dangerous. It's a myth. There's a lot of people that think it's dangerous, and it's not as dangerous as people would like you to believe. Uh, if you've got a different theory on that, I'd love to hear it. Get on the forum and uh, or post a comment on the comment section of the blog and uh, and let me know what you think on that. Okay, another myth that's out there is that if there's some kind of a disaster. It's going to be every man for himself. Really? You see, most of the people responsible for giving people in the survival community a bad name, they're the same people who focus on the self-defense aspects of survival all the time. And what's even worse is that those same people are typically who the media focuses on. They're the ones that the media writes stories on or does TV reports on, aren't they? And so the rest of the world is led to believe that we survivalists are all these unbathed people with mangy beards who live out in the woods in rotten cabins with our mangy dogs and we're out there, you know, looking like a recluse. I don't think so. That's typically not who we are. Most survivalists, and I bet a lot of you who listen to this show, we are mainstream Americans, or if you're an international person, you're probably part of the mainstream of your country, aren't you? And we get a bad name because the media likes to sensationalize us as a bunch of wackos out in the woods that uh, are living off of the land. And I'm going to get to that a little bit later. That's another myth, that you can just live off the land. But the media loves to focus on these type of people because they represent danger and radicalism. And it boosts the ratings. It boosts the ratings and the viewership of TV stations. And it boosts the readership of newspapers and publications. And here's the reality of it. Um, The handful of gun-toting survivalists who live out in, in the woods probably believe that they're making responsible preparations. They probably believe that they're doing the right thing because there's some world-ending calamity that's right around the corner, and they believe that they're ready for it. And then at the same time, the media does what it can to make these groups seem larger and more dangerous than they really are. And that's the problem. And here's the reality. There's only a few historical examples of people who have actually had to do that the 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 majority here the majority of situations in in a survival situation is that people have to rely on other human beings for their daily life and it's going to be the same after a disaster this is why i'm such a big proponent of survival networking and networking with people that are close to you and even if it's a small group even if it's just a handful of you that believe the same way, that believe that you should be making preparations, common sense preps, and that you're there for each other. We're social creatures, folks. Human beings are meant to be social creatures. And there's very few people that can't go through their daily existence without the help of others. I mean, think about it, folks. You know, you have to have the help of other people, typically, to have a job, don't you? And whether we like it or not, in order to be competent, healthy, and happy, we need a high degree of tolerance and civility towards other people. And unfortunately, in the survival community, that tolerance and that civility seems to be lacking. So, you know, that's kind of a myth, I think. I I really do. I really believe that, that every man for himself... You know, folks, there's power in numbers. 
and there's power in grouping together, and especially if you can get along as a group and function as a team. Okay, another myth is that you'll rise to the occasion if there's some kind of a disaster. And, you know, there's way too many people that are all caught up in this, in the glamour of military and self-defense fantasies, which represent heroism and so forth. You know, that kind of heroism, as as most people understand it, is really kind of just a bunch of made-for-Hollywood type stuff. It doesn't really matter, folks, how brave uh, a person is. Few people, few people actually... Uh, go into a life or a death situation enthusiastically. You know what I mean? I mean, how many people get excited about that? I mean, sure, there are people who are moved by adrenaline, and uh, and they can accomplish you know amazing feats when their adrenaline goes sky high. But that's typically reaction. It's typically a reaction to some event. It's typically not bravery. Bravery occurs only when someone is scared out of their wits and still takes action regardless of personal consequences. And, and, and those kinds of people should be honored. But they tend to have short lifespans, folks. And Socrates pointed out that men might be brace in battle one day and less than brave the next. Uh, discipline and dedication can help still quaking hearts. But the fact of the matter is, even the bravest men and women, even the people that you think are going to rise to the occasion, even the real brave ones, they do have their limits. Everybody's got their limits. We're humans, folks. We have limits. And when they reach their limit, they're typically going to break. It happens to everybody. And most good survivalists, you'll find, they're not out looking for fights. They're not out looking for battles. They're not going out there trying to rise to the occasion and see what they can get themselves into. Most of them, their goal is just to stay alive. That's their primary goal. And I think that should be your goal. Don't you agree? That should be your goal. Just stay alive. Leave the bravery to somebody else. You just worry on what is it going to take to stay alive and get through this until some type of normalcy is restored or some type of help arrives. Usually bravery has a lot more to do with ego, folks, and I've seen this. It has a lot more to do with satisfying one's ego than it does staying alive. All right, Leave the heroism for the movies because it makes for great TV and it's typically fun to watch. Now, I talked earlier about living off the land. And this is a really popular subject on survival forums and survival blogs and some of the podcasts out there. Oh, let's just head for the woods if there's a disaster and live off the land. Wow. Let me talk about this one. So many people think they can live off the land in the event of a catastrophe. Here's reality. The knowledge and the skills that you have to have to live off the land, they're extremely difficult to obtain. Not impossible. There are people who can do it. I mean, you know, I would trust Cody Lundeen to live off the land, wouldn't you? Okay, but not everybody's Cody Lundeen. You know, Cody has studied this. He's made a life studying this. If this has not been your life's work, the chances of you succeeding at it are going to be a lot slimmer than a guy like Cody Lundeen or Dave Canterbury. Would you agree? Living off the land should only occur out of dire, dire necessity. It should not be part of your plan. It should not be a design. You hear a lot about this. I'm just going to grab my bug out bag and I'm going to head for the, for the wilderness. And I'm going to hang out in the woods for 90 days. You know, try it sometimes, folks. That's all I can say. Try it. Not just 90 days. Just try it for nine days. Just go out and live in the woods for nine days and see how hard it is. Okay, you know, let me remind you that none of the very first people who settled in the United States, none of them would have survived without some of the provisions that they brought with them and from the local natives. Okay, and if you think about it, if you go back to when this country was founded, some of the first settlers here in the United States that that definitely depend on a lot of the Native Americans at that time, and they depended on a lot of the stuff that they brought with them, 
if you roll the time back and go back and realize things were a lot different. That was a period when the land was barely inhabited here in this country. And it was full of fish. It was full of game. It was full of edible plants. And I'm going to talk about edible plants a little bit later in this podcast. But since then, then, since that time, we've really kind of decimated our landscape. Okay? So many trees have been chopped down and replanted more than once. There isn't a lot of game left compared to those days back when the country was, was settled. And, and overall fish stocks right now are at their lowest point in the history of our country. And so to think that a, pe- a person could go out and survive off of the paltry pickings that are on our wild lands right now. And, and if you think about that, there's probably going to be three or 400 other million Americans that are also going to be famished. Okay, let's say that there is a disaster. I don't like to engage in a lot of this kind of fantasy type stuff. But all right, let's say that there is a disaster. Okay, and people have to start living off the land. What about the other 300 million Americans trying to do the same thing you're doing? Okay, let's shrink that number from 300 million down to 10 million, 5 million, 2 million. All right, there's a bunch of people that are going to be trying to do the same thing, and they're going to head to the woods too, and they're going to find you. Now it becomes a fight for the resources, folks. Um, It should not be part of your plan. It should only be dire, dire necessity. If you're out in the wilderness and you get stranded, yes, you know, you've seen all kinds of reports of people living for two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks off of the land. Let me tell you what, folks, those people are not in very good shape when they're found and rescued. They're not. And it's, it's a very unlikely occurrence, if you ask me, that that can be pulled off and pulled off with ease. So don't make that part of your initial plan. All right? Uh, just a quick break. Just a real quick interma- intermission, and I'll be back with some more fact or fiction on survival. Stay tuned. I don't know what to say, really. Three minutes to the biggest battle of our professional lives all comes down to today. Either we heal as a team or we're going to crumble. Inch by inch, play by play, till we're finished. We're in hell right now, gentlemen. Believe me. And we can stay here, get the shit kicked out of us, or we can fight our way back into the light. We can climb out of hell. One inch at a time. Now, I can't do it for you. I'm too old. I look around, I see these young faces and I think I mean I made every wrong choice a middle-aged man can make I uh, I pissed away all my money believe it or not I chased off anyone who's ever loved me and lately I can't even stand the face I see in America You know, when you get old in life, things get taken from you. I mean, that's, that's, that's part of life. But you only learn that when you start losing stuff. You find out life's this game of inches. So is football. Because in either game, life or football, the margin for error is so small. I mean, one half a step too late or too early and you don't quite make it. One half second too slow, too fast, you don't quite catch it. The inches we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute, every second. On this team, we fight for that inch. On this team, we tear ourselves and everyone else around us to pieces for that itch. We claw, 
with our fingernails for that inch. Because we know when we add up all those inches, that's going to make the fucking difference between winning and losing. Between living and dying. I'll tell you this, in any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's going to win that itch. And I know if I'm going to have any life anymore, it's because I'm still willing to fight and die for that itch. Because that's what living is. The six inches in front of your face. Now I can't make you do it. You got to look at the guy next to you. Look into his eyes. Now I think you're going to see a guy who will go that inch with you. You're going to see a guy who will sacrifice himself for this team because he knows when it comes down to it, you're going to do the same for him. That's a team, gentlemen. And either we heal now as a team or we will die as individuals. That's football, guys. That's all it is. Now, what are you going to do? Okay, back for segment number two. Now let's talk about some myths on starting fires. You see a lot of garbage put out about starting fires. Um, let's talk about matches for, for a minute here. Survival matches. I see so much of this. I see waterproof survival matches listed in a lot of people's emergency kits. I've lost count how many times I've seen waterproof survival matches. And... I'm of the opinion, you might disagree on this, I don't know, but I'm of the, of the opinion that that's not the best idea when carrying supplies to start a fire. First of all, they take up a lot of space. And, uh, you know, the, the, the space that they take up in your kit can be used for a lot of other things. You know, several boxes of survival waterproof matches, you know what, wouldn't it be better just to have some lighters? I mean, how about a couple of Bic lighters? And how about put some Bic lighters in some plastic bags or, or put some Bic lighters in some waterproof containers so that water can't get in there and ruin, ruin the lighter? A lighter is going to start a lot more fires than those few matches that you have. And if you're worried about a lighter failing, then use a magnesium fire starter or use some blast matches. Google blast matches on the Internet or Google magnesium fire starter. Okay, a magnesium fire starter is waterproof, and it'll light thousands of fires, folks. And a magnesium fire starter is going to burn a lot, hot, lot hotter than matches. There's lots of modern technology. This is 2011, folks. There's lots of ways other than carrying waterproof matches that you can carry with you that are light, that don't take up a lot of room, and you can start a heck of a lot of fires, and they're waterproof. So I would encourage you to look into some of the methods I just mentioned. Another fire-starting myth that you see kicked around, uh, you know, not just on the Internet, but it seems like it's been handed down like, like folklore, sort of, is the flashlight method. Okay? It, it's a method where they say you can break the bulb of your flashlight and then use the coil inside to light a fire. Okay, uh, try that sometime. Go out in your backyard and just give it a shot. And, and see, see how it works. It's probably going to be a better way to ruin a flashlight uh, than it is at starting a fire. Okay? Again, use a lighter. Carry a lighter. Magnesium fire starter. Blast matches. Okay? Use your flashlight for what it's meant for. Use your flashlight for creating light. Okay? It's good for that. Y you see another fire starting method called the ice lens method. In other words, um, starting a fire from a lens that you create from ice. Scientifically, 
this is possible, but how practical is that? Okay, what are the odds of you really being able to pull that out off? I mean, again, try that. Okay, just just try that in your backyard someday uh, in the winter. And, and while you're wasting a lot of time trying to start a fire from a lens that you make from ice, you can also be out there freezing to death in a snowy, icy environment. Okay, okay, you're, and you're going to find that it's it's a pretty good waste of your time and your energy and you're probably not going to start a fire again bring a lighter bring a magnesium fire starter use some blast matches start the fire the easiest way you can if it's a wilderness situation and you're stripped with all of your supplies and, and you're stripped of everything Okay, I mean, we've all probably seen dual survival and we watched Cody Lundeen start fires from practically nothing if you have those kinds of skills, more power to you. I'm talking about the average civilian that probably doesn't have those types of skills. The average civilian that might be stranded for a few days. Maybe you are going to have to spend a couple of days out in the wilderness. And there's a lot of other excellent ways to start fires. If you're in the wilderness and something happens and you are completely stripped of all of your supplies, if that happens to you, Yes. Okay, if you have a flashlight, then maybe if that's your last resort and you got to start a fire from the coil inside of a flashlight, okay, go for it if you have no other way. But I'm saying only if you have no other way. Seriously, once again, you know, I've always wondered, you know, I mean, like, you know, you know when you see the show Dual Survival and Cody and Dave are out there? Now, Cody and Dave are, are I mean, these guys are really, really good, Okay. But that's also made for TV. Don't forget, that's made for TV. And these guys know what they're doing. They make their life. They make their living. Excuse me, I meant to say, doing that. If you're like me and you don't make your living doing that, uh, if I'm going to go on some kind of a wilderness excursion, why not have a small backpack with you? Why not have a small backpack that I'm going to take with me that's got some fire-starting equipment, that's got some extra food and water? And a small amount of first aid supplies. I can carry a real small pack. If weight is an issue, I can carry a small pack with, you know, only 10 pounds of stuff in it. And I can, I can fit in a really small pack. I can fit a lot of very, very critical supplies. And with some knowledge in building a shelter and some fire starting equipment and maybe one weapon and some equipment like a good knife and so forth and a knowledge of how to secure food and, and things like that you know, and, and water and some extra water and a, maybe some ways to filter water that don't take up much in a survival pack or a survival kit you could probably do pretty well and since I'm talking about this let me talk about some myths about shelter there's a lot of misconceptions about creating shelter out there one of them is that higher ground is warmer I've seen a lot of that. I've read a lot of that. And it, this is a survival tale that seems to pop up everywhere. Okay? You know, you get told that when you're considering locations for making your shelter, that you should avoid valleys and avoid the low-lying areas because cold air settles there. Okay? Scientifically, that makes sense. But let's talk about practicality and actual practice. In actuality, it's a bunch of bunk. Even though a thermometer might show that it's a few degrees warmer at a higher elevation, you know what a thermometer doesn't tell you? It doesn't tell you what the wind chill factor is. Think about if it's cold. Okay? When you get to a higher elevation, you're exposed to a lot more wind. The wind chill factor can drop that temperature. The, the felt temperature can drop significantly. And even though the thermometer might show that it's two or three or even five degrees warmer by moving to a higher ground, as far as your body is concerned and what it feels like, it might feel 20 degrees colder because you're exposed to a lot more wind. Okay? And the wind will suck away your body heat a lot faster than you can generate it. And furthermore, consider what happens when you do get a fire going. Most fires will quickly heat the surrounding area. But when you factor some of the wind in from being in a higher elevation, most of that wind carries the heat away. And, and remember this, too. You start a fire in a lot of wind 
in a windy area, it's going to consume about twice as much wood as if you were in a low-lying area with no wind or very little wind. And you're going to spend a lot of time and energy hunting down firewood. And you're going to get very little heat in reward. I don't think that's a very good trade-off, do you? So don't be so quick to think that going to higher ground is the best answer. Uh, Lower ground in valleys and low-lying areas where there's not as much wind and you're not as exposed to the elements, and and that area is going to keep the heat of the fire in and and warm your area a lot more than being up in higher ground. Would you agree? If some of you have some different experience, if some of you wilderness folks that have been out there and have a different experience on that, let me know. But common sense tells me that's kind of a myth as well. Also, you hear a lot of myths out there that when you build your shelter, you should build it from dead wood and dead materials. Now, imagine building your shelter out of a big pile of dead leaves and dead wood. And then you start a campfire near that. Uh, Do you really want to be sleeping in a shelter full of a bunch bunch of dead wood with a fire going by? Uh, <laughs> or, or do you want to have a lot of green material that still has the potential to give you a lot of shelter and, and probably won't burn as easily? Accidents happen, folks, when people are in wilderness survival. That's the other thing. Accidents happen. And I'm kind of the opinion that if I'm stuck having to build a shelter, one of the things I don't want to have is I, I want to reduce the propensity for accidents to happen. I, instead of building it out of a lot of dead material, uh, look, it's my life on the line, folks. If I cut a few live trees or live branches off of trees, well, then so be it. Um, what's more important, my life or the life of a few trees? Now, let's talk about some myths about water. You know, you hear a lot of wi- myths about water in a survival situation. They say, well, you've got to boil water for at least 10 or 15 minutes before it's sterilized. That's kind of baloney as well. And I don't even know where that came from. And I've heard different variations. 5 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Most of that's a bunch of bunk. Here's the reality about water. Once you heat water to the boiling point, by that time, it's safe to drink. So, collect your water, start a fire any way that you can, heat it to the boiling point. You don't have to sit it and let it boil for 10, 12, 15 minutes. Once it hits the 212 degree boiling point, it's safe to drink. Now, let's talk about plants. I mentioned that earlier. Another myth about food, about survival food, and again, a lot of this has to do with wilderness survival, is that plants are a good source of food in the wilderness. Now, yes, they are. They are. Plants can be a great source of food if... And here's a big if. If you're a certified expert in plants, or you've studied this very well, and you know the plants in the region that you happen to be in, then you can pull it off. Otherwise, if you're not real knowledgeable in this field, plants can probably hurt you more than they can help you. Okay, Stay away from some of the plants if you don't know what they are. Here's some facts about food especially if it's in wilderness survival. All fur-bearing animals are safe to eat, and they'll provide you with good nutrients and calories. Fur-bearing animals. All six-legged insects are safe to eat, and they're going to give you good nutrients and calories. Almost all freshwater fish and almost all birds are also safe to eat and will provide you with nutrients and calories. Most of the plants, the larger number of plants will hurt you or make you sick or maybe even poison you. Okay, There are actually very few plants that are going to give you good nutrients and calories and you better know what they are. You better be well schooled in this and know what they are, otherwise you're going to mess yourself up pretty bad. So here's a simple way to think about food in the wilderness. If it walks, crawls, swims, flies, stuff like that. If it does that, the odds are much more in your favor that it's safe to eat and give you good nutrients and energy. If it sits there like a plant, the odds are, the odds are against you that it's going to be safe to eat and give you nutritional content. So here's what I'm trying to say, folks. It's typically not worth the gamble. Um, if, you, if you can secure an animal to eat 
you're going to be a lot better off than if you can secure a plant. Now, I'm not talking about what you grow in your garden. Of course, what you grow in your garden, you know what you're growing. You're growing safe stuff, and you're, you're growing safe nutritional food. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about foraging for plants out in the wilderness. You better know what you're doing. And speaking about animals in the wilderness, here's another myth that I want to talk about. Here's a little bit of folklore. If a bear attacks you, play dead. Right? Now, let's talk about some facts on that. A lot of that really depends on the type of bear that it is. If a grizzly bear attacks you during the daytime, uh, it's typically because you prompted that attack because you've invaded their territory. Okay, and once the bear realizes that you don't pose a threat to their territory, they're typically going to leave you alone. So maybe playing dead could save your life in that situation, but there's not very many grizzly bears out there. Let's talk about black bears. Okay, black bear ta- attacks are typically, uh, be, it, that's typically a predatory response. So don't be on that black bear's menu. Okay, fight back. I wouldn't suggest playing dead if that's the situation. Fight back. This is where having a good gun in the wilderness, something that's going to make a bear stop, this is where that's very, you know, very handy. And folks, what would you rather do? Play dead or or carry a weapon that you can shoot the bear with? I mean, come on. Now, here's another piece of folklore when it comes to survival. If you're dying of thirst, drink your urine. Okay, let me talk about that. First of all, ugh. all right, but, but you know, you've seen it done, you've seen it done on TV, and you've heard people talk about it. It's one thing to drink diluted, very pale urine, which is 95% water. But the more times you pass it through your system, the more toxic the effect is going to be on your kidneys. And, you know, that's kind of a last, last resort, is it not? And it's kind of a gray area as to, you know, at what point does it start harming you more than it helps you? Uh, If you can find real water, obviously, that's the best choice. I would spend more time preparing and learning how to find real water and purify water than deciding, well, I can just, you know, drink my urine. Yes, I mean, if there's absolutely nothing else and you're about ready to pass over dead, sure, maybe that could save your life. Uh, You know, don't, (laughs) just don't rely on it, okay? You know, and another thing about, about out in the desert and so forth and dying of thirst, you've heard people say, well, you know, in a desert you can drink water from a cactus. And they say that, uh, that, you know, various barrel cacti contain, you know, good water that you can drink. It's true. That is true. But there's also a huge risk of diarrhea and vomiting from the chemical content in that water that comes from the cactus. And if you all of a sudden get diarrhea, start vomiting, that's going to make you dehydrate faster. So you're completely defeating the purpose. You're better off searching for water in rock crevices, trying to find a creek or a stream or a low-lying area. Remember, folks, water goes downhill. Okay? So go downhill, follow the paths of animals, follow the footprints of animals. Animals need water just as much as you do if you're in a survival situation. Follow the paths of wildlife into the low-lying areas, and you're much likely to find water there instead of if you're out in the desert trying to bust open a cactus and drink the water. Typically, that's a myth. Another one I've heard since I was a kid, moss grows on the north side of a tree trunk. The fact, uh, in a shaded forest or near water, moss grows on all sides of the tree. Don't rely on that. It's just simply not true. You've also heard this. To treat frostbite, rub the frozen tissue with snow or, or soak it in cold water. Probably not a good idea. Use your body heat. Don't rub the area, but use some of your body heat or or try to immerse the frostbitten tissue in warm water if you can. But do all that only when you're positive that there's no chance that the uh, that it's going to uh, you know refreeze that the tissue is going to refreeze. 
you know, because you could you could increase the risk of permanent damage if you do that. Okay, another myth. Uh, you ever heard this one? I've heard this a lot. I've heard this from my grandparents. I've heard it from a lot of people. Drinking alcohol keeps you warm. Now, I think that myth came about because alcohol does expand the blood, ves- blood vessels and the extra blood near your, near your skin from the expansion of the bl- uh, blood vessels. It makes your skin feel warmer. Here's the problem with that. The problem is that heat's going to start to radiate away from your body a lot faster when that happens. And you're going to end up being colder than before you started drinking alcohol. Simply just not a good idea. Okay? That's one of those urban myths, I think, that, uh, you know, drink some alcohol, have some whiskey, whatever, drink some vodka, it'll make you feel warmer. Nah, it doesn't. Uh, And, folks, I I can attest to that one personally. I've been on many ice fishing expeditions growing up as a kid in Wisconsin. And, uh, watching my uh, my parents uh, do a little extra partying while ice fishing and uh, they certainly got colder and ended the ice fishing trip a lot quicker after a couple of drinks so try to stay away from that you've also heard people say well you can eat snow or ice for hydration okay to get some water into your body and it seems to make sense because you know snow and ice is just cold water here's the problem by doing that you're going to lower your body temperature and when you lower your body temperature you're going to waste a lot of energy so before you start eating ice or snow try to melt it try to boil it try to let it cool down to room temperature or a modern temperature excuse me moderate temperature before you drink it if you can you don't want to reduce the body temperature of your body any colder than it already is if possible because even though you may hydrate yourself you're going to start depleting your body of a lot of much needed energy okay here's another one have you ever heard this one people in the city will die if the stink hits the fan okay if you're a city dweller you're toast not necessarily true a lot of people imagine that if the stink hits the fan that a lot of city dwellers are going to starve to death or start killing each other now granted I'll give you this, all right? I'll give you the fact that people in the city are probably in more danger from war, terrorism, you know, things like that. But preppers in the city, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, preppers who are in the city or in the suburbs who band together to defend their area, think about it. There's power in numbers. You band together, you might be a lot more able to make it until order is restored. Right? Who wants to attack a bunch of people that have you outnumbered and maybe even have more weapons than you? So think about that. Whereas people in the country, it's going to be a lot harder for people in the country to band together. Okay, You don't have the power in numbers. You're more isolated. And in the country, think about it, you're a much more isolated target as well. So I'm not saying one is better than the other, whether you're in the city or the country. There's advantages to both. But the myth that people in the city are automatically going to be toast and perish if some kind of a stink hit the fan event happens, I think that's bunk. I think that's a, that's a myth. I don't think that you should believe much of that. Okay, and think about this, too. Those of you who are way out in the country, I mean way out there, uh, you might be the last ones to start getting supplies once the trucks start moving again. And once they can start getting supplies to the area, where are they going to take the supplies first? They're going to take the supplies to the city, where you have a larger number of people who are suffering and who need it. Okay? Now, again, I'm not saying that one advantage over another. I'm not saying it's better to be in the country. I'm not saying it's better than to, to be in the city. Whatever your circumstances are, whether you're in the country or the suburbs or the city... Just just know how to prepare, but just don't believe the garbage that, oh, well, I'm, I'm screwed automatically if I'm in the city. Okay, just think about that. Oh, and by the way, a couple of things I forgot to mention earlier about water. Uh, you've also heard this myth. Running water is safe to drink. If it's running water, if it's moving, it's automatically safe to drink. That You can't always count on that either. Okay, remember that running water had to come from somewhere. And the source from whence it came may have been in contact with something bad. And so it might be still carrying some kind of bacteria or chemical from the source of the running water. Now, running water in a stream, that's a little bit different. Yes, if you have a choice between running water in a stream or running water in a creek and stagnant water, 
then definitely choose the running water. But don't automatically assume that it's safe just because it's running water. The best advice, as what I said before, is have a way to purify it. Okay, water purification tablets, they're, they're very easy to carry with you. Good water filters. Good water filters that filter out 99% of the junk that can harm you are not that difficult to carry. A method to boil water may not always be that difficult to have with you. So think about that. Don't just automatically assume because the water is moving that it's safe. And and, and more stuff about water. I've heard this one too. Drinking salt water in small amounts. That's okay. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Drink salt water as long as you don't drink too much of it. No. No. Drinking salt water in any amount typically is going to make you get even more dehydrated. Because of the salt content in the water. Just try not to do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. All right. Drink fresh water as much as you possibly can. And last but certainly not least... I want to talk about another survival myth, a factor fiction about survival, and that is people that get this idea that they can hold off multiple armed attackers and marauders, the zombie hunters, okay? Here's the fact. Fighting multiple dedicated opponents is difficult and not a very wise idea. I don't care what your training is, and I don't care how good you are at it, okay? It's just simply not a good idea. It's much better to use the environment to shield yourself from your, 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 your attacker's advantage that they have in numbers, okay? And maybe get an occasional blow at the opportune moment on your attacker. Whatever environment you've got, whatever way you can seek cover, whatever way you can seek shelter, any way that you can get away from the situation, diffuse the situation, taking on a bunch of people with your AR-15 and zombie hunting and mowing them down is, folks, that's fantasy land. Come on. You don't want to... Again, what's the likelihood of that? As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, very, very slim. If it happens, try not to take on attackers that far outnumber you. The only way to take on multiple opponents with with a reasonable chance of success is if you can find some kind of an equalizer. And it's going to be pretty tough... Because you might have a gun, but if you've got 15 other people armed with a gun, you're toast, folks. I'm sorry. You're just not going to be able to hold them off. They got you outnumbered. Okay? Someone with a real solid understanding of how to use a knife or a stick, you know, might be able to hold off one, maybe two attackers. Not nine or ten. And here's something else to think about, okay? We live in a nation, at least here in America. I'm talking about Americans now. We live in a country where probably 70% of the men out there carry pocket knives. And there's about somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 to 400 million firearms that are in civilian possession in the United States. Again, there's, there's somewhere between 350 and 400 million guns that have been sold. You know, about 80 to 90 people. Excuse me, 80 to 90 million people have a gun, and if you do the math, they have more than one gun. So, to imagine that a serious fight is going to occur without somebody shooting back at you is kind of fantasy land. Okay? And plenty of studies have shown that in an ambush, even some of the best shooters are usually only capable of hitting one or two people before they get hit by a third or a fourth attacker. Okay, And and this is when your attackers are in your line of vision. If you're being hunted down by numerous, by lots of people, and again, it's typically not going to happen, but if you're being hunted down by a bunch of people, typically they're not all going to be in your field of view. And trying to defend a static position without support is a death wish folks uh, uh, unless you really are heavily equipped now if you're if you're in a fully ensconced position and you've got plenty of artillery and I mean artillery it might be a different story but don't think you're going to be a zombie hunter uh, and and fight off tons of people because you're holed up in an area with an AR15 that's Hollywood 
that's typically not reality. Again, I hope that uh, I've covered some things here for you to think about that you see floating around and you hear a lot of these myths, these urban legends, these pieces of folklore that are tossed around and in reality. And again, I like this to be a practical show. I like to talk about practical things. I don't like to talk about far-out scenarios. In reality, a lot of these myths just don't hold water. Pardon the pun. So, with that said, let me hear your comments. I'm sure I've forgotten some, and I'd like to hear your comments on this. So, uh, jump on the uh, Today's Survival Show forum, or put some comments on the uh, comments section of the posting for this podcast. And once again, my name is Bob Main, and as I've been enjoying a drive here on the freeway with very little traffic... I'm happy to report. Uh, It's been my pleasure to bring you episode 145 of today's survival show, where it's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have in a sensible way, wherever you are. Thanks again for listening, folks. I'll catch you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.